with us as we go to sea in our next segment with Craig Simons on Civil War Talk Radio. How much time each day do you spend managing your personal or business calendar? 15 minutes, a half an hour, maybe more. Is the conference room available for next week's meeting? And how many people do you have to ask to find out? Have you ever misplaced or, worse yet, lost your day planner or handheld device? And what do you do about that missing information? Do you own or operate a salon or carpets cleaning business? How about a realty office or any one of a thousand other service-based organizations? Can your customers make their appointments even when your office is closed? If any of this sounds familiar, then Schedule Online is the solution for you. For more information, call toll-free 888-668-3355. That's 888-668-3355. Or visit us online at www.schedulonline.com. Before we return to our riveting drama, our sponsor insists that we listen to a radio show about television. I'm Jim Benson, host of A Different Sort, as I direct you toward a galaxy of TV memories guaranteed to leave you spellbound while I present many of the greatest legends in television history on the TV Time Machine, every Wednesday beginning at 4 p.m. right here on World Talk Radio. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. To speak with our show hosts or guests during the live show, call us toll-free in North America, 888-514-2100. Everywhere else, call 001-858-268-3068. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich at East Carolina University. Talking today with Craig L. Simons, history professor at the United States Naval Academy and writer of Civil War and Naval History. Craig, let me ask you a question about the Naval Academy. Uh, what are students like there as history students? Well, they're uh, they're remarkably wonderful um, young men and women. Uh, I'm not saying that just to plug the Naval Academy. They really are. They're people who have made a decision, first of all, that they want to serve their country. Now, I don't mean to pretend for a moment that there aren't other motives that lead them to the Naval Academy. It is free, after all. Um, but we get so many applicants, and I, I sat on the admissions board the last two years and read many of their application essays, and they, they're just, they just bleed red, white, and blue. They're, uh, they're eager, patriotic, enthusiastic young people and, and pretty smart to boot. Now, of course, the Naval Academy is an institution that prepares young men and women for the Navy and Marine Corps to be officers in the Navy and Marine Corps. And the curriculum is filled with all sorts of technical things that I would never have survived myself as an undergraduate, like electrical engineering and a couple of semesters of chemistry and physics and four semesters of calculus and all sorts of things like that. And everyone takes all of those courses. But you can major in history at the Naval Academy, and we just finished major selection for the class of 2008, good heavens, and uh, 105 of the roughly 1,100 students, in other words, about 10%, chose history as a major. So they're interested in their nation's past, and particularly, of course, in military history, and especially in the Civil War. The Civil War course that I teach uh, closes out usually in about the first five minutes of pre-registration, 
And so they tend to be uh, students who are very interested in the course, who have gotten up early in order to sign in to get it, and are very enthusiastic about the material. So they're, they're great students to teach. Well, I, I would guess your success as a teacher has something to do with that as well. But it is certainly a fascinating era. They, uh, do they bring something different, do you suppose, than students at civilian universities? Well, I think they do in a couple of ways. One way, uh, and this, in this respect, I probably share this characteristic with other national institutions. It is a national group. I, on the first day, I usually ask them to identify themselves. How many of you went to high school in states that were part of the former Confederacy? And I'll get, oh, a third to a half hands will go up. And then I'll say, and how many of you went to high school in states that were part of the Union states at the time of the Civil War? Well, of course, there are one or two who kind of hesitate because they're not exactly sure. Um, but what that creates then is a dynamic in the classroom where there really is a national audience, and they bring with them um, perceptions and understandings and sometimes misunderstandings from their various segments of the American society. There's that. And then, of course, the other characteristic is that they are particularly interested in leadership decision-making. In my course, I probably spend more time on that as an issue than most would. We do the causes of the war for oh, four to five, six weeks. We do the war itself for eight weeks and Reconstruction for four or five weeks. But in the discussion of the war, we do get down into the weeds a little bit to talk about the way that individual decisions made by individual commanders affected the lives of of soldiers and the outcome of battles and and they're interested in that because they can see themselves in that position perhaps with different technology but under similar circumstances where they have to make decisions that put the lives of others at risk so in that respect i think they're particularly interested in that aspect of the war that must be a great opportunity to teach students like that I would it say. is it's great that's wonderful you've written about uh, confederate admiral franklin buchanan right uh, there, there's a subject uh, where, whereas everyone's heard of Joe Johnston, the Confederate Navy is, is very much a, a, a smaller part of the war. Right, uh, it is. Tell um, us a little bit about Buchanan and his career. Well, Buchanan is an interesting guy on several levels. He's he's a crusty old sea dog. He is uh, <laughs> who went into the Navy during the War of 1812. Mm. So that's uh, how he had a commission that was nearly 50 years old at the time of the. Uh, first shots were fired in the Civil War, and and he came to manhood in a navy that identified itself as a navy of wooden ships and iron men, and then of course ended up fighting in iron ships. So he he kind of personified that transformation both technologically and I think culturally too. He was very much a participant in the debates over the uh, elimination of the lash as punishment on board ship, which he opposed, by the way, uh, not not opposed the lash, opposed to getting rid of it. He was very much a, a law and order man of the old school. Um, and the shift over from sail to steam technology, the new ordnance revolution of the 1850s, going from iron smooth bores to uh, rifled artillery. So he, uh, he really straddled, I think, an era in terms of his role. And another nice tie-in for me personally was not only his Civil War experience, but the fact that he was also the founding superintendent of the United States Naval Academy, and the superintendent's house at the academy is called Buchanan House. So another connection there. Right. Now you have just written a, a new book on naval warfare, which includes the Civil War, but I guess goes beyond that as well. Is that correct? Right, it does. I um, There's kind of a story behind this book. Um, 
Tom Buell, who some of uh, the listeners may recall as the uh, author of uh, Warrior Generals, as well yeah, as other books. Very interesting. Um, Tom Buell had come up with an idea for a book in which he wanted to describe the changing character of naval warfare from the point of view of those who were involved, how it felt to be in a battle during the age of sail, during the age of steam, and during the, the more or less the modern era. And uh, it was going to be kind of a mirror piece to his, uh, it's called Sea Warrior Trilogy. And he wanted to talk about the Battle of Lake Erie during the War of 1812, the Battle of Hampton Roads, the Monitor versus the Virginia Confrontation in the Civil War, and the Naval Battle of Guadalcanal in World War II. And he was very excited about the idea, but hadn't really done any work on it yet when he visited his doctor, and his doctor informed him that he had leukemia. And, of course, he was devastated by this news. And it wasn't the first question that came to his mind, but he was saddened to think that this idea that he had might never reach fruition. Well, it turned out that he got in touch with me and said, you know, here's a project that, you know, you might, I would like for you to take over. And so that was the beginning of it, and I did do the Battle of, uh, of Lake Erie and the Battle of Hampton Roads, which is a Civil War connection, and then added to that uh, the Battle of Manila Bay in the Spanish-American War, the Battle of Midway in World War II, and the Persian Gulf from 1988, because I think each of those represent a different technology on the one hand, and also represent a different place for the United States in the world. On the other hand, I think they help define, help sharpen the definition of the role the United States would play in the world. And so I'm, I'm, I'm calling these milestones that inform us not only about the changing nature of naval history, but the changing nature of American history as well. And I called it uh, Decision at Sea, Five Naval Battles That Shaped American History. And it's coming out from Oxford next week, so your timing is perfect in asking about it. I appreciate that. That's right. That'll be April or March of 2005. If you're listening a lot later, it's already out. That should be uh, very interesting. It seems there's been, uh, and we'll stray a little off Civil War, but not too far, there's, there's been a revolution uh, in writing of naval history in the last few years where the emphasis has shifted from strictly technology to some of the soft factors. I'm thinking about uh, Andrew Gordon's rules of the game mm -hmm. uh, on, on the Battle of Jutland or uh, Ronald Spector's uh, sort of survey of that war at sea. Right. Uh, Michael Palmer's right. new book. I, I think those issues never really went away. The, the technology seems to dominate because it's become so sophisticated and has so dramatically changed the nature of war at sea that it's hard not to make uh, a dominant reference to technology and its role. I mean, we who now watch war almost in real time on television as these smart bombs equipped with micro-television cameras, we can follow them right down to the target. Uh, it reminds me somewhat of Slim Pickens riding the atomic bomb down to the target in uh, Dr. Strangelove. But, right. but it brings us right into the war. So the technology has become a star, but all technology is managed, operated, and all decisions are made in the end by human beings. And the human factor in warfare should never be overlooked. We can never safely find ourselves in a situation where we allow the technology to be the dominant decision maker. But so I think say, you're right. I think people have, a, have recognized that, and some of these new books are, are making it clear. And, and your, your survey of these five battles then does not neglect this human factor. Oh, good heavens, no. In fact, given Tom's goal in this book, I tried very hard to make sure that the human factor was foremost, not only in terms of the decision-makers, but how it felt to be on board. I tried to get uh, as many accounts as I could of the enlisted sailors 
and and how they felt and and what their experience was to be in the middle of this cauldron of war. It must have been something if we go back to a place like Hampton Roads, where because the technology is so new, there's really no reference for the experience of. Well, there isn't, and uh, it's, what's fascinating to me is the uh, the accounts that I found, some of which are published, some of which are not, of those who participated both inside, and that's an interesting uh, word to use because we're not talking now so much about people serving on a ship as we are talking about people serving in a ship, and it's at Hampton Roads that that shift takes place. You see the references that these sailors make. Well, I was in the Virginia. I was in the Monitor, whereas if they were on a typical sailing frigate, they would say I was on board the USS Cumberland or whatever it might be. And they use much of the same language to describe their experience. They felt shut in, locked in, and closed away in the belly of the beast, uh, and, of course, they don't have any visual perception of what's happening. They they have to use their ears to understand what's happening outside as the clang and smash of metal that's going on around them informs them of what might be happening because they can't see. They're simply shoveling coal into the furnace or operating their guns as fast as they can go without any visual reference points. So it changes the whole human factor in warfare. There's, there's certainly no electric lighting. They're, they're, they're literally working in the dark. But Literally working in the dark. They had battle lanterns, quite literally, mm-hmm. um, that darkened the places below. But most of those were put out, only a very few, were just enough to, to be allowed to see. So you're operating in kind of a twilight darkness throughout. And the, the commander of the monitor was actually blinded during the action, wasn't he? He was. John Warden uh, was in a little pilot house, and it's a tiny little thing. It's 32 by 42 inches. If you can picture that, about the size of a phone book that sticks up on the front deck of the, of the monitor and has a five-eighths inch wide slit out of which he looks. Now, of course, that slit looks through nine inches of armor plate. So, you know, it's like looking down a long tunnel, which means your visual range is, is tiny. You can barely see what's happening at all. And he shares this space with the pilot and the helmsman. So here's three people in a phone booth. And you're only able to look out through this tiny, narrow slit at what's happening. And it just so happens that at what turned out to be a crucial moment in the battle, when a a solid shot smacked directly on the uh, uh, pilot house, uh, it wasn't, excuse me, not a solid shot, an explosive shell. And so uh, fragments came in through that slit into his eyes, and he fell backward crying out, I'm blind, I'm blind. As it turns out, he did recover, uh, and... uh, continued in his naval career after the war where he was a two-term superintendent at the U.S. Naval Academy where the drill field where the midshipmen uh, drill every Friday afternoon is named for him. And I find a certain irony to the fact that in marching from Bancroft Hall, the midshipmen march past Buchanan House to get to Warden Field at the Naval Academy. So history is all around them there. Yes, indeed. So, so well, that is a... a very evocative description you give there of what it must have been like in that pilot house. Uh, or or anywhere else in the ship, for that matter. I mean, the, the stories are similar, depending on where you are, down in the engine room or in the uh, the revolving turret. Um, it, it, I think it's important in understanding history to get a visceral feel for how it felt, as well, of course, as for what it meant, which is what historians always try to do. That, that's right. I think one of the things that, that I find intriguing about the naval warfare in this era is the, the shortening of the decision cycle, which is certainly a, a technological phenomenon. Absolutely. But, but it's also 
you're still using the Mark One human being to actually make the decision. <laughs> well, that's one of the themes of of this book, Decision at Sea, that's, that I've got coming out. Is that the time frame in which you have to make a decision is dramatically shortened and it, it's exponential. In the age of sail, you, you had to find ways to entertain the troops while you were closing on the enemy because they could absolutely collapse from boredom. Uh, the origin of this famous uh, story about Lord Nelson at Trafalgar who raised this uh, complicated flag hoist system that spelled out letter by letter, England expects that every man will do his duty, was primarily in order to keep the flagmen and the officers busy translating messages so that they wouldn't be bored in the long, long run-up to the enemy line. And you contrast that with a decision that has to be made, for example, in, in the Persian Gulf in 1988, where it's a matter of seconds. You need to decide if what your radar repeater is showing you is a hostile or a friendly that's approaching. And you better decide pretty quick, because lives depend on it. I'm, I'm told, and you may know better uh, than I, that, that when the USS Stark was, was hit by an Iraqi missile, I guess it was in the 80s. Uh, right, 87. The uh, captain uh, of the ship was uh, attending to nature's call. That's the story. I simply said he was uh, in his cabin, which, uh, of course, has a private head. Uh, I've been told, I have not been able to verify that that's exactly what he was doing. The dilemma here is that the, uh, the radar uh, system on the Stark did not pick up the separation of the Exocet missile from the Mirage fighter. Had it done so, there were defensive uh, arrangements that could have been taken. But it was not clear that a missile had been fired until a lookout visually sighted it approaching the ship, which gave uh, the captain about 11 seconds of decision time, it was just enough to turn to starboard trying to uncover his, uh, his phalanx system, which is astern, but not enough time before the missile struck. Yeah. So, so a situation like that, the, the contrast between that and, and hours in which to prepare exactly. your troops uh, exactly. is really remarkable. Well, well, I'm very much looking forward to reading uh, your book on uh, naval history. Thank you. I, I think it will be very interesting. So, uh, the Civil War certainly was a time when you had not only the ironclads, you had the uh, you had the, the submarine, the Hunley, which right. has been made of recently since uh, it was discovered. Mm -hmm. uh, although I, I will tell you, my thought is when I read in a textbook, the first use of the submarine shows this is the beginning of modern warfare. Uh, that the Hunley was really uh, a novelty item. Uh, it hardly influenced the course. Yeah, and we have to be careful. It's not the first use of a submarine. There were submarines in earlier combat, as early as the American Revolution, but it's the first submarine to sink an enemy warship uh, successfully, mm -hmm. um, which is, I think, a milestone. And it's, you're absolutely right that it's a novelty item. I mean, the phrase that I've used elsewhere is a gimmick weapon. Yeah. And the Confederacy being shorthanded in so many ways, not just in terms of manpower, uh, assets, but also in terms of industrial capability and so forth, had to find some kind of shortcut. It's typically the weaker naval power that opts for the gimmick weapons, just as Germany turned to U-boat warfare in the First and Second World War, uh, and the Americans used uh, gear de course or commerce raiding warfare in the American Revolution. Stephen Mallory knew that if the Confederacy was going to be uh, able to hold its own at sea, it would not be able to build as many ships as the North, so it better build a new kind of ship, which is what led to not only the conversion of the Merrimack into the Virginia and the creation of the uh, the Hunley, as well as others, Pioneer and so forth, uh, submersible attempts and the David boats, but also mines or infernal machines, which suggests another problem here, the total war 
pushes the envelope of what's acceptable warfare. There was a lot of view at the time that putting dumb mines in the water or in the ground, for that matter, was an inhumane and inhuman kind of warfare and therefore completely unacceptable. Uh, but, of course, uh, in the end, mines became a mainstream form of naval warfare in the next century. And, and uh, certainly continued to be used today. Absolutely. So there are a lot of interesting parallels. I, I was thinking of the, uh, uh, the suicide boats that are used uh, against our forces in the Persian Indeed. Gulf. As, Indeed. Uh, a technologically inferior force. Correct. That's a good example. Another case of a weaker technological side taking advantage of gimmick weapons, if we can use that phrase to such a, a horror. Well, I, I, let's talk about more parallels of, of past and present and the Civil War. Uh, in a few minutes, we'll be right back with Craig L. Simons on Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> 